Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join Tiffany and her fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is Tiffany. I am your host, and I am joined by a fellow patient co-host, Carice Hill. They are a chronic disease advocate and has axial spondyloarthropathy, <laughs> or AXFA, and is a blogger and a writer. So uh, welcome so much. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. It's good to speak with you. I know. I, I <laughs> always. I just, I just love this person. <laughs> <laughs> we go back a few years, so this is exciting. <laughs> uh, so our topic uh, today, we're going to talk more about people in our community who are affected both physically and mentally by autoimmune arthritis diseases or autoinflammatory arthritis diseases in a variety of ways. So all is revolving, though, around our physical limitations. And mm. uh, when we kind of reach that point in our journey where we say, wow, we might need some help. I mean, that's, that's really kind of what we're talking about here. Uh, Carice, did you want to give a like kind of a, a overview of this because it you it was your idea to submit this and I don't want to take the whole intro because <laughs> you, you it was your idea to to submit this and and I thought what a great topic so I'm going to turn it over to you and let you kind of give an introduction about what we're going to talk about okay sure uh hi everyone um so I I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis or axial spondyloarthritis in 2013 and I was 26 years old at the time. And um, less than three years later, I applied for federal disability benefits. And I now live uh, receiving um, SSDI, which is Social Security Disability Insurance. And so I'm what you could call a card-carrying disabled person. But before I ever started receiving disability, I was disabled. And so for me, being someone living with AXPA, it has affected me mentally, it's affected me physically, and restricted a lot of my day-to-day -day activities. And so I thought it might be interesting to talk about this with Tiffany and talk about what it means to be disabled and what some fears are around that whole topic, mm -hmm. um, what, what I call internalized ableism, which we, we can get into a little later. But it's, it's really talking about, you know, moving into using assistive devices like canes or wheelchairs or even like mm -hmm. neck braces, which is something that I'm wearing today. Um, and then also, you know, a little bit about invisible disabilities, which is kind of what we live with um, mm -hmm. before we start using those items. 
And so I hope that this will be a really enjoyable conversation. I know that that <laughs> at first, you know, when you first hear the word disability, you don't automatically think joy. But for me, right. it's a very empowering identity. And so I hope we can bring some of that joy into this conversation as well. Yes, I, I do too. Thank you. And so that's everyone who lives with these diseases, they have an onset. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that one day, that one moment, that one month, whatever that might be, where we first experience this pain. And with the pain also comes a lot of questions. And over time, when we become chronic, many of us still in the beginning are invisible, right? Yeah. We're, we, there's often a young onset, which adds to that because you might look young and healthy. And then the other issue is since these are diseases that are of the immune system and are at a cellular level, it takes a while yeah. for the damage to become visible. And, and in many cases, that visibility, as you mentioned, Carice, is involving canes or wheelchairs mm -hmm. or neck brace or something that is visible. It may right. not be visible on our bodies, but the use of something makes it, brings visibility to it. Right. So there's different times of disability. And one of the things when I, we were doing our, our pre-show pre notes, Carice, you had said disability, the definition, any condition that restricts one or more activities of daily living. Yeah. <laughs> and I <Right>. mean, <laughs> that's basically so, anyone with chronic disease. <laughs> exactly. Um, so th I thought that that was just really interesting to put that out there for the, the sole reason that, yes, from onset, if you are limping or you are something, your quality of life is not to par, there is a level mm -hmm. of disability from the beginning. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And how, as we progress an onset, there may or may not be the need to use assistive devices. Uh, there also is this moment that we get to where it's, well, you know what? I'll be okay. I'll, I'll use one later. If I get worse, I'll use one later. And then we typically pay for it mm -hmm. <laughs> with a, with a flare. And that moment where you start to decide, you know what? I'm going to own this. Yeah. I'm going to use an assistive device, and there's a whole process mm -hmm. mentally that yeah. goes with that. And that's a lot of what we're going to get into today. Uh, so there's this range. And, um, and as far as uh, ableism itself, I had asked uh, Carice to give a, an overview of, of that. And I liked how you, you said, you know, discrimination in favor of the able-bodied. I think that's just a really clean way of putting it, uh, uh, to be uh, that it's normal to be non-disabled and abnormal to be disabled. Right. It's, it's sort of like, um, you know, sexism is saying that a man is normal and then a woman sort of defined by what's left over. And that's, you know, if you translate that into ableism, all, Im all isms sort of give you know normalize a privileged class so yeah non-disabled people and that's able-bodied and like able-minded if that you know mm -hmm. so for yeah. example like stairs that's something that people who are able to climb stairs 
you know, they have access to a building really easily. But if you're someone who isn't able to go upstairs, then, you know, how are you going to get in the building? Are you going to go around back by the dumpster where the ramp is? So a lot of times accessibility is an afterthought. So that's sort of an example of what ableism looks like. Could you also just give a brief overview as we're introducing this uh, on the social model of disability versus the medical model? Yeah. So the medical model of disability is sort of like what I mentioned before, or actually, Tiffany, you brought it up, the what disability is when it comes to like applying for disability benefits. So Mm -hmm. any condition that restricts one or more activities of daily living. So if you're unable to get dressed by yourself in the morning, that, that's an impairment, that's a disability. And so disability, the medical model is sort of this, this blame on the individual for being sick or having impairments and this perspective of someone needing to be fixed to be non-disabled. And the social model of disability is sort of this... Um, putting responsibility on society to making the world more accessible to all people, mm. whether you, are, you have an impairment or not. So social model is basically, sure, my disease impairs me, but society is what disables me. And it's not my disease that makes it difficult for me to enter your building by stairs. It's actually your preference for stairs that's making mm-hmm. causing this barrier to me being able to participate and enter independently. Thank that was that was wonderful. <laughs> I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they are not even reading. I was watching. So good job. Outstanding. <laughs> I've had some practice. <laughs> I say so. Uh, so that was a great explanation and 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 in summary of what we're going to go into a little bit more is is really this is about then the internalized ableism, which is that fear of being or seeming or becoming disabled. And, right. it, and, and that goes back to what I mentioned in, in the onset here, where you have that decision on when do I accept this is what I, what I need to do. There shouldn't be uh, a negative stigma around it, but mm-hmm. often... It, it, it is perceived that way. And we uh, beat up ourselves right. internally on, on this. Um, did you want to add anything to that before we, we yeah. break out and talk more? Yeah, I think so. I wrote this note down, this idea of internalized shame, like the self shame that I learned from a really young age of being a really, really active kid. And I didn't really get injured a lot, but I still had a lot of pain, and any time I would bring it up, it was sort of blamed on myself for, you know, being too active. Maybe I hurt myself, and only decades later, I realized that none of that pain was my fault because I had this incurable chronic disease. But, I mean, from a young age, like under 10 years old, I was taught not by, you know, sitting at a desk and a teacher teaching me to think these thoughts, but taught, socialized to blame my body for not doing what I thought it should do or what society told me it should do. And that transferred into 
the delay of me being diagnosed Mm -hmm. and then into after being diagnosed feeling like I should still be able to do these things without assistance and then shifting into oh actually like having a cane or actually having a wheelchair means I get my social life back (laughs) because it it preserves um it stop it prevents me from having as much pain and fatigue and allows me to do more with the energy that I have. And so almost immediately when I started using a wheelchair, I was like, I love this thing. It's my freedom to participate in life again. Ooh, like, I like that. I can go to um, a fa- like an outdoor fair, like with booths along the street, and roll up and down and be there for hours, whereas before I wouldn't have even tried to go because of the pain of walking and standing. And uh, I think getting out of that internalization of these these mobility devices are shameful and stigmatized, and I don't really need a wheelchair because I can still walk. These assumptions and stereotypes that have been socially encouraged because. Mm-hmm. People who are disabled are, you know, seen as less than because of that ableism that's prevalent. And I have so much more to say, but okay, <laughs> I want to give you a chance to respond. So, with no, your certainly, it was just what you were. It's really interesting because I knew we were discussing this topic, and I don't think that I realized until you were just talking how much I do this to myself. Because I also live with spondylitis and it is very difficult for me to stand for long periods of time. And uh, my, like my husband and I enjoy going to concerts. And mm. if we can't purchase the s- tickets that are seated, mm. it, it, it's always this question, can we go? Do, you know, what are we, how are we going to, how are we going to do this? And I can't say that I have thought about, well, what if I had a scooter Hmm. or what if I used a cane or I, it's just never something that has come into my mind. And I think, and the re I don't, I don't think I know because I'm asking myself right now, why is that? And it's because I am worried about, I think what people think Hmm. that they're going to judge me. Yeah. And that's terrible. I, sh- you know, I, but it's real. I'm being completely honest. Right. And that's normal. It, it, that happened. Um, actually, I was in Vegas, Las Vegas, with several of our volunteers at IFAA a few years ago. And four, four of them rented scooters. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, I still was, I actually was still all right and and walking and i i I definitely didn't need any assistance at that time um but i was walking behind them and we were uh, we wanted to sightsee and that was the only way that they were going to be able to sightsee and they're all at different levels of their disease journey uh two two of them are uh classified as disabled according to social social security the Right. And the other ones were being very responsible and they're in a line in their, mm. uh, with their scooters and <laughs> <laughs> one, two, three, four, going down the sidewalk. And I am following and some man stops walking and makes fun of them for being lazy. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to I'm not going to lie. I um I took a moment to tell him how I felt about that. Yeah. <laughs> situation and uh, that and I did make it clear that these people needed them. Um but I that moment of me having to tell that person yeah made me angry because they should they should not have been shamed right because they needed that. And the there were being young visibly mm-hmm. and not showing any signs of anything other than they were in a scooter, it, it caused judgment. And and I think that that moment also, as I look back at my pattern, you know, things that I've witnessed, mm-hmm. I'm sure that all has something to do with my own yeah. perception and my uh, building my own fear of why I, I feel that way today. So I did not plan on any of that. <laughs> <laughs> I had an aha moment. I just had to share. <laughs> Woohoo! How exciting! <laughs> Hopefully, the but, next time you're gonna rent a scooter and go down the sidewalk yourself, waiting for I, somebody. You know, it's it has gotten to the point. Um, same thing with traveling. When you go and they give you the option if you need to board early. Yeah. And there have been times that I have taken advantage of that, but I'm honestly don't do it as much as I probably should. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that I need to start being more aware of the freedom. I, I just love how you said the freedom to participate in life again. Yes, absolutely. I, I moved into, so I moved from fear of, you know, part of it's like fear of letting go of a past life, which is something that these diseases do. Mm -hmm. Most people aren't expecting to be diagnosed with a disease that's going to progress throughout your life. And one that is even less understood than a majority of conditions, even though it's very common. So that on top of I was a college athlete, I was a marathoner, I was like working 60 plus hours a week and loved it. And suddenly, you know, I have this disease that flips my life upside down and I have to let go of all these previous identities. And in a way, that shift of identifying, beginning to identify as disabled was like leaving the last bit of me behind. Mm. and. We can talk about separately, you know, that I've reclaimed old passions as well. And I've, you know, formed an identity I'm proud of. But it's that letting go of sort of the pride that's associated with being non-disabled. So living in a body that is healthy, um, having a mind that isn't, you don't have mental illness, things like that. there's that shame attached to them, that stigma attached to them. And so moving from this, if you will, this jock personality, I was I didn't have like the mean jock thing. I was just like, athletics was my life. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been mean. I'm not a mean person. I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like moving into that and letting go of ability that I'd always had that I never thought I was going to let go of. And shifting into this whole new realm of being less than. So it's like losing privilege, losing the privilege to enter any building without worrying about whether it has a ramp or Mm -hmm. being in any social space and 
wondering if there are going to be chairs where I can sit if I don't bring my wheelchair, that sort of thing. And it, oh, it's yeah. scary. It's a huge shift because you're completely shifting your outward um, appearance to the world. It's, it's just the, the shift into a whole new realm. of it's, it's a culture shift. You're learning, like disability is a culture just like any other identity. And it's learning new language. It's learning the history of it. And as soon as I began learning the history of it, I was able to shift into being proud of identifying with a group that is one of the largest minorities in the world, but that mm -hmm. is one of the most oppressed identities in the world. And that makes it automatically difficult to identify that way because mm -hmm. there's fear attached. Anyone right. would be afraid of moving into an oppressed class. How did, could you talk a little bit more about your, uh, the steps that you took or the, it, what you went through to get from wow, I'm struggling to acceptance? Because I think that's, mm. I mean, that's, I, I think that's a little bit of where I might be right now. And <laughs> I think, that, again, I'm just like having all these, I'm writing notes to myself because I think, wow, I just didn't realize, I feel like I'm a little bit of denial. Um, mm. But how did you, or advice, I guess, mm. for, for people who are still at that point, like, nah, I, I don't right. know that I'm ready. I so for me the process was slow and then it sped up the more mobility aids I added. So for me it began with uh, using a wheelchair in the airport. So uh, having people who are paid to push people in wheelchairs from gate to gate and pre-boarding, so boarding the plane first. And I realized that when I asked for a pre-board pass without my cane. I would get looks even from the people who were hired to to give me the pass. Like, why mm -hmm. am I faking the system? And so that's when I started using a cane. It was more of a, like, I need a visible thing so that I don't get questioned as much. Uh -huh. And now my cane is like my favorite accessory. I take it with me everywhere because I never know when I'm going to be standing for a long time and may need to lean on it. And I have yeah. a nice purple flashy cane. It's why why shouldn't canes be accessories right i just i just bought i this was an episode that aired we'll, we'll link to it i my mom has been having issues with uh, autoimmune and arthritis situations that just really emerged this year and she's been having to walk with cane yeah and i we i i got her a custom made mermaid cane because she loves mermaids hey. and, I, and, and, the, and it's a like beautiful accessory. And so, so that, that, that is, that's true. And you going, circling back, you mentioned the visibility. I know there have been times where I've needed to use a placard mm -hmm. on my car if I'm flaring really bad. And I have caught myself limping harder yeah. than I have to because of the stairs. Yeah. And I know I'm not alone on that. I oh gosh, there. no! <laughs> I just I know there's <laughs> a lot of stories about about that situation. Mm -hmm. um, use, using using the placard. Yes, and that's that's everywhere, and that translates or that's applicative to multiple uh, countries as well. You see all these videos of people confronting disabled people for parking in the disabled spot because they don't look disabled, and I think. 
that is sort of a natural part of the the transition into identifying as full-time disabled. Mm-hmm. And for me, now I don't I don't even look at people when I park and I always park in an accessible spot now. I don't just do it on the bad days. I do it on the good days too because my biggest goal is conserving energy. And mm-hmm. it's also politically motivated because I want to normalize invisible disabilities. And so, yes, I need to park there, but I also park there because I know it helps other people who are, you know, still too scared to mm-hmm. do that because I'm I'm 32. I don't look disabled. There's no there's no right or wrong way to look disabled as we all know, but it's still that fear on both sides. It's the fear by the people who confront us and say, well, why are you doing something you shouldn't do? That should be for people who are actually disabled. And my comeback is always, well, what does disability look like? Please tell me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but more back to sort of my transition, it was just, I kept adding slowly, adding devices that would help me. And I realized there was a point where I was really wanting to attend a march like the I think it was the Martin Luther King Jr. march one year and I realized that there was no way that I could physically do it unless I had a wheelchair and so I borrowed a wheelchair from my church at the time it was just clunky medical wheelchair that I couldn't push myself and so somebody pushed me and I realized like oh I want my own wheelchair so that I can be independent. Because if this is the only way that I can participate in these activities, I want to be able to push myself around. Thank you very much. So then I began researching. I got my wheelchair off eBay after measuring myself. You know, there's a way to measure yourself to get a custom fit. And there's all this research involved. And we can talk about that some other time. But I was so excited to get my chair in the mail and take it out for a spin and learn how to use it. And, and, and now I just love it. I keep it in my car all the time because I never know. And I want to have that flexibility of participating, that freedom, as I said before, that freedom to participate in life. You said something, too, about wanting to be able to push yourself. And uh, yeah, I know that you, we had talked previously about disabled people being portrayed as these as being having needing pity or Mm. needing help can you expand a little bit more on your experiences with uh, people offering help and your opinions about that Uh, oh my goodness do I have stories (laughs) (laughs) stories are good I think the most common one is when I'm flying and I've brought my own wheelchair. And the way people travel with their own wheelchairs is they get stored just underneath the plane, like with strollers and with last minute checked bags. And so after I get off the plane, I wait for my wheelchair to be brought up. And I can't tell you how many times that I start pushing myself up the the jetway and someone has just started pushing me from behind without asking me or like in the middle of saying, oh, can I help? They've already started trying to help me. Mm -hmm. And 
that's something that's really important for everyone to know is that you should not assume someone needs help. You can offer help, but if they say no, don't push them anyway, because that's actually an invasion of personal space. Mm -hmm. So my wheelchair becomes my legs, literally. Like that becomes the extension of my body. And it's, it would be like you coming up behind someone and starting to push their back because you think they need help. Um, and so it's, there's this consent piece that goes along with it. Mm. And that, that's the same with like opening a door for someone who's using a cane or a roller. It's always important to, to offer, ask, can I help open the door for you? Or is there a way I can help? And then if no is the answer, then you say, okay, cool, have a good day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to remember that these devices become part of our bubble, part of our personal bubble. And if you wouldn't walk up and touch someone's pregnant belly without asking, well, some people don't realize. I was that's just gonna say not some people do. <laughs> okay, to do, but don't push, don't touch our wheelchairs without our permission. Don't assume that we're in need of help. We can ask for it, and you can give it, or you can offer. And if we say yes, then please do give it. But there's that uh, self-autonomy piece that comes with still having agency over our bodies. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time, non-disabled people sort of don't see us as fully human. Mm-hmm. And that can happen in the form of like, if we're with someone who's like not in a wheelchair, they talk only to that person and not to us. Like, what would your friend like to eat at the restaurant? Oh, really? That happens. That that hasn't happened to me, but I hear that story a lot, where suddenly we become like this animal or this this nonverbal person that if you're in a wheelchair, apparently that means you are not able to speak or hear. (laughs) So... Wow. It's all these assumptions that are then transferred into us, and we start seeing ourselves from that perspective and that's sort of the internalized ableism of like not wanting to become the person that everyone else sees as less than right and that's just that's a fear and Mm -hmm. it's something that probably everyone who has become disabled as an adult who wasn't like born with a disability has Mm -hmm. had to go through that transition into being accepted and acknowledged for having a healthy and function fully functioning body to being someone that is suddenly seen as not fully human. So mm. of course there's fear with that. Of course. The other thing that I'm I was picking up on when you were talking about the whole transition and asking permission for help, there's some level of wanting to own and adjust and adapt to a new normal. Because we all, regardless if we're using a wheelchair or a cane, with these diseases, we're always adapting to a new normal, it seems like. Yeah. And the, the mental strength that comes from those little victories of I, I accept my role or I, I feel comfortable now. And that's like a, a mental win. And so I could see how that is something that I don't think I would have thought about uh, prior to this conversation, but that that mental component of this is me and this is how I work mm-hmm. and I am proud or um, right. it, this is who I am and I don't need help because this is me. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That, yeah. Uh, so I, I can definitely see that. And I think that's a really good tip or advice for people going through the struggle to think of it that way mm-hmm. instead of what I was saying in the beginning of this fear of being perceived. Maybe it's really a it, it's re- maybe it's really a, a viewpoint of ownership and mm-hmm. acceptance into yeah. this new role that we have to be focusing on. I introduce myself to people as professionally disabled and it throws people off because there's so much value associated with working. And, you know, the first question people ask when you meet someone is, what do you do? Expecting sort of a job title or, you know, what. And for me, the question really means like, what do you fill your time with? What gives you an identity? And so I, I say I'm openly and proudly professionally disabled. <laughs> and it really throws people off because people aren't used to associating that identity as having value. Mm-hmm. And my whole point is normalizing it because, again, like I said um, several minutes ago, disability is a, a huge chunk of the world's population. And we're so invisible in terms of being silenced and whatnot. And so, uh, I want to segue briefly from that, though, into how hard it, it can be to be disabled living with AXPA. Okay. So living with our specific disease because every day is different. Some days I could probably walk a mile. I might suffer later. And then the other days I might be stuck in bed all day wanting to go to the emergency room and there's no... There's no way to predict it unless I know I overdid it. But some days Mm -hmm. it's just huge sudden flare. And it took me a really long time to allow myself to identify as disabled all all those times. So even on the good days and the bad. I used to say, oh, well, you know, today is not one of my disabled days. And last week I had a disabled day. But the reality is that I'm the same person every day. And every day I am disabled Mm -hmm. because, you know, I live in a body that's unpredictable. I always have pain and it always impairs my ability to function. And And that was another big shift for me. And I think there's a tip in there of giving ourselves permission to identify as disabled all the time, even if we don't feel like we fully fit that category every day. Like, do we deserve to to be in this group if not all days are as bad as we think they could be. Um, Just because the reality is that with spondyloarthritis, every day is different. Mm -hmm. That is an exceptional point. And I think when we're talking about the normalizing of this, that is a huge component. Right. Because what is normal? What is what we talked about with the the actual definition of, of disability? But when a person has this fluctuation of ability or quality of life that could shift uh, daily, it, uh, it, that is important to note. That right. is also normal right. <laughs> for what yeah. we live with. And it doesn't diminish or, or lessen our experience because uh, we don't match per- maybe what 
some people have a preconceived notion or a stereotype mm-hmm. of what disability is. That is a perfect way to put it. <laughs> oh, we are so good together. <laughs> I think an easier example um, is like, okay, let's say you're going grocery shopping Mm -hmm. and when you arrive, you feel so, you you feel great, you feel fine. And I think this is such a great example because I think all of us have experienced it. Then you go in the store, you do all your shopping and by the time you get to the checkout line, your feet are dragging, you are hit with sudden fatigue and you're like, how am I going to make it back to the car? And so that's like an example of like, it could suddenly shift. So even Mm -hmm. if you weren't feeling awful when you parked in that accessible spot, or some people call it handicapped, but accessible's better, I think. When you go into the store, you may feel fine, but when you leave, you're absolutely disabled. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's an example of like, if if you say today, oh, I'm not disabled, but then by the end of the day, you're feeling like, you know, really bad. Uh, giving ourselves permission to to identify that way all the time is important. So another thing I think is just important to point out as we're talking about this is that the disability community is still working out, you know, how people choose to identify. And that's as simple as the idea of um, person-first language, which is like I'm a person with a disability and identity first language, which, which is a disabled person. So when we're talking about like the Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, and I know that I'm going to be specific to the United States here, um, but at the time, people with disabilities was like the correct way to describe disabled people because, you know, you were speaking about a person before the disability that kind of lessens their humanity in a way. Uh, Now we're sort of shifting. A lot of people in the disability community are shifting into identity first language, which is disabled person. I personally choose how I choose to identify that way, but not everyone's on the same page. And so I think it's important to ask how people want to identify with that um, identity. And also just be aware that, like for me, I don't say I'm a person who is queer. I say I'm a queer person. And like, mm-hmm. I have a lot of Jewish friends, for example, who say, I'm, I don't say I'm a person who's a Jew, I say I'm a Jewish person. And mm-hmm. on the same level, I say I'm a disabled person. But I just want to point out, since we're talking on this subject, that that is something that people should just be aware of and think about, and it's important. No, that's that's absolutely, uh, thank you for pointing that out and bringing that up, because that is important when we're talking about, well, we're talking about identity <laughs> right. here, and, and that it becomes very, very important. Um, I wanted to circle back briefly about uh, your decision to seek out disability. I know that it was some level difficult to accept. We talked about work and, and that feeling of value and how it, sometimes society puts that uh, on a person. How did you get to the point where you said, you know, I accept this, I can no longer work, and this is what I'm going to do? Can you tell us a little bit more about how you went about that and, mm. and when you made that decision? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I so the in the United States, the process to get federal disability benefits, like the average amount of time it takes for people who actually get it is like three to five years. And for me, I was in the third year before I was granted uh, benefits. And while you are in the process of fighting for disability, uh, and it is a fight, that's very accurate, you're technically not really supposed to be working at all because if even if you're like working part-time, the Social Security Administration can say, oh, well, if you're working part-time, then you're not disabled and mm. sort of use that as a reason to deny you. Um, so that that's just a little background of what I knew I was going into as I was thinking about all this. So I was working two jobs. Um, one of them was part-time for a nonprofit, and one of them was full-time, but it was a temporary job. So mm -hmm. I needed to keep the other job, you know, for when the other one ended. So I was really, I was working um, a fair amount of hours, um, but my health was getting worse even with all that. And I knew that even if I was working just regular 40 hours a week, uh, it my health wasn't going to improve. Mm -hmm. I was working and then I would just go home and collapse and wake up the next morning and do it all again. I didn't have any quality of life. I didn't have a social life. I was getting sick all the time and having to call out and use like vacation time. Mm -hmm. Um on top of handling doctor appointments, on top of handling infusions. And I just got to a point where it wasn't a choice anymore. I, I knew that applying for disability was my only option. But at the same time, and I think a lot of people listening can relate to this, we know that disability is not a living wage. And so there's an obvious, like, terror associated with <laughs> relying on that to survive. And so that's one of the ways that our country kind of keeps people not wanting to apply for disability. A, because it's so hard. It takes so many years and not many people have that much money saved up to survive. Mm -hmm. And because even if you do get it, it's something like just over 50 or just under 50% are actually given disability in the end of people who apply. So a huge chunk of people are denied. Mm -hmm. So there's no guarantee you're going to get it. And it's such a low amount of money that if, like who would want to apply for that? So mm -hmm. I was juggling all of these thoughts. Um, like I want to keep working because I that's how I meet people mm -hmm. <laughs> and I can live off of the wage um, but my body's not allowing me to do that anymore. So for me, it, it ended up not really being a choice. But it was about a year that I thought about it before I actually quit working mm -hmm. to do it. Well, thank you for sharing that, because I know a lot of people do struggle with uh, trying to push themselves to keep doing it. And whether mm -hmm. that is just personal choice, uh, wanting to stay or pushing themselves maybe to a point where it's unhealthy for them. I just think that uh, it, it's important to talk about that. And I hope that more people in our community do talk mm -hmm. about uh, that and, and accept if you have come to a point where, like you said, your body just can't do it right. anymore and it's okay. I think that's, that's the important takeaway too. It's yeah. okay. 
Yeah. And just a quick tip for anybody who is considering seriously applying for disability. Um, of course, I'm still talking about the United States. I do personally recommend seeking out a disability attorney from the start. Most of them will only get paid if you win the case or if they win your case for you. So uh, find one that's not going to ask for money up front and mm. um, they can help guide you through that process. Thank you for that. And yeah. um, if there's uh, people listening who are not from uh, the United States and you have tips too, please, by all means, submit those because mm -hmm. IFA being international, uh, we want to open that conversation up because this is relevant. I know this is relevant yeah. <laughs> globally. Um, so if, if any, any tips from anywhere you are in the world uh, are, would be very welcome. Uh, as we start to wind down this conversation, let's talk a little bit about what needs to happen mm. <laughs> to address this issue. I mean, we talked about the need to dismantle uh, this, this issue of internalized uh, ableism. What are some of your what are some of your suggestions or your ideas, Carice? Yeah, so um, I want to introduce this uh, term called universal accessibility, and that can apply to uh, any environment, any space, whether it's a building or a gathering or anywhere that people gather for any purpose. And uh, one of one great example is the Ed. Roberts campus in Berkeley, California. It's a building um, that's been designed to maximize usability by the most people possible. So basically, um, like for example, there's an elevator that has a call button that's like a long vertical button that reaches like really by the floor up to about three or four feet that anybody of any height or if they're using a wheelchair and, and don't have the use of their arms, are able to push it and access the ele elevator without assistance. Mm. Or like a building that has like a flat entry, like no stairs or ramps, that just everybody enters the same way. Or like websites that are designed um, to be used by deaf or hearing impaired people or blind or low vision people. And that part actually is really important for our community mm -hmm. because. Um, Things like iritis and uveitis can cause blindness or vision loss. And mm -hmm. um, there are people in the spondylitis community who use screen reader software that like reads what's on the screen back to them. Mm -hmm. And so having websites that are compatible with those, those softwares is important. So Absolutely. that um, is important. I think Overcoming fear and internalized shame, which is sort of a societal process and an individual one. For me, it was individual, but also learning about the culture behind the identity and feeling safe being open about being disabled. I mean, in the US, and I'm sure this is similar worldwide, 20% or more people live with disability. Um, so that's a lot of people. We have a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of say if we band together and use it. So I think those are probably two two of my biggest examples. What about you? What do you think? Well, you were talking about the um, accessibility with the stairs, and it it made me think back. You know, I have a degree in architectural design, and when I went for that, I ended up loving the business portion of it. So I ended up toggling and going back to. Uh, get some education in business development and, and marketing and then 
worked in project management, but I had my when I was in school, we used to do a lot of tours at mm. sites because mm-hmm. we're learning about building. And you know, I, I initially, when you said about the flat entry, that would require a lot for the land and to to ramp up. But it's really interesting because it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it would it would require uh, initial design because you'd mm-hmm. have you know, an initial build. But it made me think of this place we visited where there were stairs mm-hmm. and there were, it was on a hill. And so I still this was way before I ever was living with these diseases or really knew anybody who was experiencing any type of disability, there was a sign handwritten on a stick Mm. on the hill. And it said, and it said accessibility ramp. Uh And I was horrified. Yeah. And when you said something, when when you mentioned that, I thought, wouldn't that be, it's just amazing to be Mm. able to have something like that. The other thing that I think is important is that all buildings that are now, a lot of them are equipped with the buttons where you can open the door. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's not required that they work in all locations. That right. surprised me when I found that out. And I found out the hard way <laughs> because I was um, helping somebody at, at, at IFAA get around in a wheelchair mm-hmm. and we got stuck. Because it didn't work, mm. and I was trying to oh, we I we I was trying to open and 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 push her through, and I reported it, and it, that was when it came to my attention. It's not necessarily um, required that there's accessibility <laughs> to get in and out. And I thought, what do you mean? We got stuck in a door. <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, that that's one step down from the universal ramp, but that that should just be universal in itself. Right. That, that those those work. Um, right. Those are useful for people who are pushing strollers. Those are useful yes. for that's that's the idea of universal accessibility is that it's not just access specified for disabled people. It's like the, you know, kids can use it. People pushing strollers can use it. People who have trouble navigating space can use it that sort of thing yeah. yeah i i agree and i think that do that doing those type of things would also help with the whole issue of the the stigma and normalizing mm-hmm. this because if it was the norm for that becomes a norm that everybody just looks at then right. there is no um, right. differentiation and and i just think that we we really need to work on looking at disability as ability <laughs> ability in and um in different different ways for different people i do want to give an example of an accessibility aid that is widely accepted you and i are both wearing them glasses ah so prescription eyeglasses weren't always around and if you weren't able to see without you know lens help then mm-hmm. you were disabled. And I mean, technically you could still be disabled, but eyeglasses are such a normal part of life now that nobody, pun intended, bats an eye at them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And so I, I want people to think about how a shift can happen and normalization can happen. That's great. That was a great example. So I just think that also encouraging speaking out, it's a little shift from what we were just saying, but in order to address the issue and really dismantle it, people have to start talking and accepting acceptance of new roles. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it. (laughs) I I need to, to -hmm. be better about accepting my limitations and accepting different roles. And I just think that the communication is going to be important to that as well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, I want to thank you, Carice, for for nominating this topic, <laughs> first of all, and I think it's it's really valuable, and it's it's definitely something that we need to keep the conversation going about. Uh, so we're gonna we're going to ask those of you who have tuned in, let's keep this conversation going at IFAA's social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us at IFAI Arthritis, all one word, and we'll post some follow-up questions and conversations about this. And uh, also you can find this full episode and all of our episodes at aiarthritis.org backslash podcast. You can also submit topics for future episodes. You can join our free AI Arthritis Voices 360 Club to get some behind the scenes uh, footage. Uh, Not that we ever mess up or anything. But you can get, there might be some bloopers here and there. Um, you could also support the podcast so that we can keep the show alive. But I just, again, thank you so much, Carice. It's been wonderful having you today. And I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate you being part of this. You're welcome, Tiffany. All right. So tuning out from AI Arthritis Voices 360, please pull up a seat at the table and let's continue the conversation. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode, where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. Oh,